this evening I thought that when I was reflecting about it I, I, uh, I thought I'd like to offer a short story by way of instruction on this theme uh, teaching stories as you'll be aware I'm sure often give us a picture that we can carry around with us and, and pictures of, you know, multi-dimensional and like, like symbols there's not linear logical information that's being transferred only it's, uh, there is information being transferred but there are other dimensions within us that are touched or like poetry So the story that came to my mind immediately thinking about this theme was one told by a, a Zen priest, Venerable Moranaka Soko Roshi, at a lecture that I heard at the Buddhist Society Summer School many years ago now, you know, maybe 25 years ago. But the story is still there in my mind. The, the, the message uh, um, really connected and has stayed with me, the image uh, meant something so, so I'd like to share this with you this evening and hopefully it also um, contributes something to your own contemplation on this theme of cultivating uh, integrity so the image, the story goes that there's a man rowing a boat down a river estuary so you have a, a big wide river estuary, a tidal estuary so as this river is uh, approaching the ocean it's tidal, it's influenced by the tides of the ocean coming in and going out. and It's, it's a big river and, and, uh, and so this man is, is rowing his little boat, his dinghy. He's rowing down the estuary and when the uh, tide is going out, he makes rapid progress. And you can imagine rowing away and, and he's very pleased with himself because he can see how fast he's moving. And he can see these different points on the landscape. And you think, oh, look, there's that, there's that hilltop, just past that hilltop. And keep going. And, oh, yeah, there's that, there's that tree. And you keep going. And, oh, there's that building. Oh, yeah. And so you can see the progress. You can measure the progress. And, and he's feeling really good about it. But then when the tide changes and the tide is coming in, he's rowing, but it gets much more difficult. He still keeps rowing, but after a while, this is just too difficult. And so he gives up. And he's sitting there feeling dejected. And sure enough, he says, oh, yeah, well, there's that house. Oh, yeah, there it is. I passed that before. And there's that tree. Oh, yeah, I passed that before. And there's that hilltop that I passed. And there he goes again. And he sees himself going back and back and back. But then the tide changes. And actually, he's not drifting. Anymore. He goes, oh, so he gets inspired. So he starts rowing again. So he's rowing, oh, this is all right. And he oh, yeah, there it is again. And he starts making progress and he's feeling good about it again. He's really moving. He's really going somewhere. Passes the same landmarks. and then, But then a few hours later, well, the tide changes and the same story. Until eventually he, uh, he realizes that he's got a bit of a predicament. And so he thinks, well, perhaps I'll stop fighting the tide. And instead of trying to keep making the same progress that I'm making when the tide is with me, if I just keep rowing, well, then I won't go back. I'll just be here. But then when the tide changes, then I'll go further. And sure enough, this is what happens. So he keeps making the same amount of effort. 
Any of you that have been rowing know what it's like. It's like rowing against the tide. It's hard work. It really exercises your muscles, your chest muscles and your legs. And you really, you know, but if you try to fight the tide, it's, it, you, you don't do very well. So. so you don't want to fight it, but you've got to accord with it. So when he's got the tide with him, he's really making progress. When the tide's against him, well, he's not making any progress, but he's not going backwards anymore. And then sure enough, as the tide turns, now he's making more progress again. He's making the same amount of effort, but the rate of progress is very different. And so I don't remember exactly how Venerable Moranaka Sokaroshi was uh, telling the story, but what comes to my mind is that this really relates very well to our cultivation of the precepts, our precept practice. That if we just keep doing the precepts, if we just keep our precepts, then sometimes the, the current of the conditions of our life are with us. And we can see we're making great progress. We can see we're doing well. We can really feel like things are just great and we feel really good about life. And, but then the current of life, the conditions of life changes and whether it's external, the weather, the politics, the economy, or whether it's physical, health, internal, our moods. We encounter difficulties, absolutely unreasonable mind states. The tides are against us, we know it. If we just keep doing our precepts, then the result is we don't lose ground. Okay, maybe we don't feel like we're still progressing, you know, we're not still getting somewhere. You know what it's like when you really feel like you're getting somewhere in your practice. Your meditation is going well and, and you, you seem to have a positive mind state and your relationships are working out and you feel like, oh yeah, practice is working, you're getting somewhere. But we can't be attached to that. If we are attached to that, there are serious consequences. Because when the tide turns and we don't feel like we're getting anywhere anymore, we can get despairing. And if we don't have a way of, of not losing ground, then we can suffer. And we can undo, actually. We can undo a lot of the goodness that we've been cultivating so far. We put a lot of effort into our practice. And, but if we stop keeping precepts and we start behaving in uh, ways that compromise integrity, then we lose self-respect and, uh, and we start drifting backwards. So I find this image very helpful to, to encourage the cultivation of precepts. It's not the case that we're always going to be feeling like it's going great. But what we can do is protect ourselves from losing ground. One of the things Venerable Moranaka Sokoroshi said on that occasion, I remember, was he said, now I'll probably get the numbers wrong here and, and, um, and uh, I apologize for that. But he said, I've been a monk for maybe 30 years but actually, I've only been practicing for about 10. And what he was saying was that the conditions of life don't always conspire to be conducive, so we're enthusiastic and focused and committed to our practice. But in his case, what he's pointing out was because of his commitment to his training, even though he wasn't really practicing hard all those 30 years, because of his commitment to his training, he didn't lose ground. So then when conditions changed again, he could move forward from where he was. Another image that, that comes to my mind, and I was relating this 
uh, a couple of days ago where we had a precept ceremony. Um, some of you will recognize we have a new Anagarika in the monastery, Anagarika Arno from France. And I'm uh, very happy to have him join the community. And so during that precept ceremony, I was talking about the training that he's undertaking and how the Buddha gave us these guidelines that uh, help protect us in our practice. Now, sometimes when we talk about the precepts, the moral precepts, they, the word moral precepts, is, oh my goodness, you know, what are you going to start harping on about morality and making me feel guilty because, you know, I know that I'm always compromising. And, and we, can, we can have a negative view of precepts, but that's not the Buddhist view of precepts. The Buddhist view of precepts is they're our protectors. You know, you know when, you, when you take the, the, the precepts, um, the five precepts or the eight precepts, at the end there's this little chant which says that, that these precepts are the foundation for happiness, for goodness. And, and the Buddha, you see the Buddha sitting on the lotus. The lotus, that's the symbol for precepts. That's the foundation. That's the very foundation for the aspiration for, for enlightenment, for freedom, for liberation. So it's preparing the ground. And as I was saying to Arno and on this occasion of his taking precepts, that, that uh, the training of, of, in precepts is, uh, is, is something that, that protects our goodness and the image that I was suggesting was that um, because he's going to be cooking in the kitchen now, that, that when you're cooking, you know, you're preparing this food for nourishing the body. And, but before you prepare the food, you wash your hands, right? And you also wipe down the sink. And the rag you use for wiping down the sink is not the rag you use for cleaning the floor in the bathroom and the toilet. You use a very different rag. It's got something. It's got a label written on it. We don't want because we know that that rag actually is infected. That's dirty. And if we use that rag for preparing our food, actually we're not going to get nourished. We're going to get sick. Well, so it is with our precepts practice and our meditation. The meditation is for nourishing the heart. The formal practice of cultivation of concentration and mindfulness is for nourishing the core of our being. And yet, if we don't know how to contain that skillfully, if we're not keeping moral precepts, then even though we can be putting time into our meditation and, and, and trying very hard, if we're getting around being heedless in other areas and compromising integrity, being dishonest, being unkind, being unskillful in and, and relationships and if we're compromising integrity, well, then we lose the benefit. We lose ground. We go backwards. And so the encouragement over and over again, the Buddha gave it. And, and not just for beginners. I mean, there's an occasion where the Buddha's personal attendant, Venomal Ananda, asked the Buddha, said, what is the, uh, what is the purpose of sila, yeah. training, keeping precepts? And the Buddha immediately replied, freedom from remorse. That's not what, have, what would have come to my mind. You know, but that's the Buddha's wisdom, is freedom from remorse. If the heart is not free from remorse, well, then it's very difficult for the mind to become clear and concentrated. You know, we, we have aspiration for developing peace of heart and mind and clarity and sensitivity. And yet if our activity of body and speech, and that's the five precepts are dealing with body and speech, activity of body and speech, 
if the activity of body and speech do not accord with our aspiration for liberation, well then, even though we're putting in a lot of effort, unfortunately we maybe don't get the benefits. And so the teachers, the Buddha and the great teachers all encourage us, don't, don't dismiss this stage of practice. You know, we, we can sometimes get convinced by our uh, rather heroic drives to conquer delusion and conquer ignorance and we can read uh, very inspiring teachings and, and hear inspiring uplifting talks and, and, and want to realize the ultimate uh, but if we're not actually if our activity of body and speech don't accord with those aspirations well then we're going to be disappointed so uh, as I saying the Buddha encouraged it Ajahn Chah was encouraging it all the time Many of the talks that he gave us uh, were about this area of training. And the, um, just uh, the last few months in particular, uh, our new Samanera here, Samanera Gambiro, who some of you remember as Anagarika Gabor, uh, he's been uh, helping and other members of the community and the monastic community and the lay community have been helping us prepare a, uh, a new compilation of Ajahn Chah's talks in English, we're going to. They're going to be reprinted uh, in a new compilation. All the talks that are available for free distribution in English are going to be compiled together in three books and will be reprinted and available for free distribution around the world. And so we've been putting a lot of work into these talks. And these talks uh, are very inspiring, but I can tell you when, when we were, some of us were engaged in the work of selecting Ajahn Chah's talks to print for free distribution to print, translate into English and print, actually it was quite hard work because a lot of his talks were not the sort of thing that, that people want to hear about. He was just hammering on about you know, your precepts and your behaviour, body and speech and so on. And, and it's not something that you want to you know, necessarily, uh, you're, not, you're not necessarily going to find inspiring and, and uplifting. But they're very important. The pre- precepts are very important. If we forget about them, well then, the image that, that, that I used to have when I was in Thailand as a young monk, we used to pull water up from the well. We didn't have pumps. We had to do water hauling every day. If we wanted water for bathing and washing and so on, we'd have to pull the water up from the well, and the wells were very deep. And it was hard work pulling the water up from the wells. We'd have to do it every day for quite a long time. And the image that came to my mind was it's like if you've got this bucket and you throw it down there, but if before you throw the bucket down the well you punch a whole bunch of holes in the bottom of the bucket, and then you're pulling the bucket up. Well, you've done all the work, but by the time the bucket gets to the top, it's empty. And that's how it is when we actually, when we're compromising integrity, when we're lying, you know, or taking things that are not given, or killing. If we're behaving in ways that, that hurt living beings, intentionally hurt living beings by body and speech, if we're engaging in such activity, well then all our other spiritual exercises don't bear fruit. A couple of weeks ago was full moon day of Marga Puja and, and it was the occasion of, I think it fell on a Friday, so most of you weren't here for the Dhamma talk that evening, but uh, I gave a talk on, on what's uh, known traditionally in Pali as the Owada Patimoka, which is a teaching the Buddha gave 
in Pali, there's one stanza which is Sabha papasa akkarnang kusalasa upasampada satchita pariyotapanang etang pudanasasanang. And it's these four lines which are so profound and so important. It's refrain from that which is unwholesome, cultivate that which is good, purify the heart. These are the teachings of the Buddhas. And, and the thing that I was pointing out on that occasion was how important, how significant it is. The first line is refraining from that which is unwholesome. Yeah. Because if we, if we don't wash our hands before we prepare food, if we don't clean the bench top with a clean rag, then we prepare food. Actually, the food gets spoiled. Yeah. If we don't prepare our body and speech in a suitable way that expresses kindness, consideration, harmlessness, sensitivity, respect for ourselves and others. If we don't prepare our body and speech in this way, well then, if we haven't got a suitable container for the heart activity of cultivating Dhamma. So having these images in mind to encourage us to be consistent in our precepts, not because we're getting heavy on ourselves and moralizing, that's, that's, that's not that's not helpful, that's not skillful. But to see them as protectors, to see they protect the guardians, is our security system. The precepts are like our immune system. Bolstering our immune system, if we're going to be susceptible to infection, is a wise thing to do. Well, there's always a chance that our hearts will be infected with greed, aversion and delusion. The wild, untrained passions can flare up and the heart becomes infected, distorted with greed. And we see things that are actually not worth hanging on to as hanging on to. Mm-hmm. With ill will, we believe that hurting is a wholesome thing to do. Delusion. We don't know whether we're coming or going. We, we, we can't see what's, what's reality, what's true and what's not true. So the heart gets infected with greed, aversion and delusion Unless we've got a very good immune system. If our defences are in place, well then it's easier to say no to these things. And that's so that's why the practical precepts is like saying no. Like the impulse to take that which is not given. The second precept. Adinadanawirapmanisikapadangsamadiyami. I undertake the training to refrain from taking that which is not given. If we really consciously take this on, really seriously to refrain from taking... And so it means that when you're at work and there's a tendency to want to just nick something that nobody's going to notice about it, maybe you'll get away with it, but the thing is that you'll know about it. And just the same as when you see somebody else nicking something, your sense of trust to them diminishes, depending on how big the thing is they nick, whether it's yours or not. You know, your, your trust diminishes accordingly. But to some degree, you know, ah, oh, this person is not trustworthy. They steal things. Well, likewise, when we reflect, when we remember, and we can't help it, remembering that we steal things, or we tell lies, musawada, the other one. You know, if we know that we're dishonest, then actually what happens is we don't trust ourselves so much. And so our immune system, our, our ability to protect ourselves and respect ourselves and look after ourselves and care for ourselves is compromised. And so the heart is actually defenseless. And so then when the wild passions come up, greed comes up, ill will comes up, delusion comes up, whatever, they, can, they, they get into the heart and, and infect us and take us over. 
And a lot of this stuff is very basic. If in traditional Buddhist cultures, for instance, you go on a meditation retreat in Burma or in Thailand, and, yeah, the teachers there assume that you're already well-skilled in these things. And dana and sila and generosity and, and, and moral integrity, you know, it's assumed that you're already well-trained in these things before you take on the level of, of training uh, of, um, of bhavana or direct cultivation of meditation. Well, many of us um, you know, have come from a, a less balanced education, a less balanced spiritual education, and, and so we have these ideals of, uh, and, 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 and very passionate aspirations for purifying the heart, and we're keen to use meditation because we like being in our heads, we like playing with our minds. Yeah. But when it comes to actually being in the body and saying no, the impulse to take something that's not given, or say no to ourselves when there's the impulse to exaggerate, yeah. the impulse to lie. Uh, you can lie and get away with something. Lie on your CV or something. Well, nobody's going to know. I'll get away with it. Everybody does it. Well, maybe you'll get away with it, but you know about it. And it lodges in our hearts. That memory lodges and it compromises our sense of containment. When the container is not strong, then the process of transformation of the heart is compromised. Another image that, that you probably heard me give before, but I'll give you again tonight, which is, I think, a, a wonderful image for the process of transformation, purification of the passions. And that's, uh, this is Zen story night tonight, because this, this is a, an image that came from a colleague of... Uh, the, the Roshi that I was talking about, Moronaka Soko Roshi, this is a Venerable Myokyoni, a, um, a nun who, who lived in London for many years and taught in London and Luton. And she was a geologist before she became a nun. And, and she used to give this image of the process of transforming carbon dust into diamonds. The element of carbon is the same in carbon dust, soot, black, filthy stuff, not a great deal of value, and pristine, beautiful diamonds that will cut through things in the most powerful way. The element of carbon is the same, but there's been a transformation. Now, the process of transformation requires certain elements. There's got to be tremendous heat, incredible pressure, and impeccable containment. Because if you have the pressure, you have the heat, and you have the raw material, and the container's got a flaw in it, well then, as the pressure and the heat builds up, you just end up with a terrible mess. And this, tragically, sadly, often happens on meditation retreats for people who put themselves under great pressure, and the heat of the contained passions builds up, and they have these tremendous willful aspirations for, for purification and and realisation, but the sense of self-respect, the containment of self-respect is not there because we haven't built it. We can't trust ourselves because our conventional perceptions of ourselves is actually we are not somebody who's trustworthy because of our perceptions of the way we've been conducting ourselves in body and speech. We speak in dishonest ways. We do things that are actually uh, dishonest. And so uh, mentioning these things, hopefully uh, not... Uh, not sounding like a sermon, but, but to, to encourage us all to recognize the, the value of these cultivating these protectors, 
These are the these five precepts, precept practice, cultivation of moral integrity, protects the goodness we've already got and the goodness that we're cultivating. So we don't drift backwards, we don't lose ground when the current of the conditions of life turns against us. And another aspect of precept training that is very important and worth mentioning uh, when we're talking about this subject is the opportunity to increase awareness of our intention. So when you're looking at these precepts, taking the precepts, I undertake the training to refrain from intentionally killing living beings. I undertake the training to refrain from intentionally taking that which is not given. So intention is very important because whatever we do in life, things are going to happen, that uh, accidents happen. Maybe you take something and somebody comes along and says, you stole my, you stole my zafir. Yeah. Maybe after the meditation here, you pick up your zafir and off you go. And, and then somebody comes running after and says, you stole my zafir. Say, so, oh, no, I didn't steal your zafir. I, I actually, I, it was a mistake. So I, you took my zafir. Yes, I took it, but I didn't steal it. There's a big difference. Yeah. Or you're walking along the path and then crunch, you squash a snail. Well, you're really trying to be impeccable about your precepts. You're trying very hard to keep your precepts and not intentionally killing living beings. And so you pick up snails. You don't go and put them in the neighbor's garden because that's not suitable. But maybe you've got one corner of your garden where you put all your snails and your slugs. Or you do something other than just, just squirting them and squashing them and killing them. So you're really trying to be impeccable with your precepts and then you're walking along and then squash, splat, you've killed a snail. How bad do you feel about that? Well, how bad we feel it should be dependent upon our intention. Yeah. That's, and so, but if we don't know our intention, then things happen in life you know, that we can feel very remorseful afterwards. And parents with children... You know, children don't turn out how they hope they're going to be. If the parents can, if parents know their own hearts and can reflect and say, "Well, my intention, I tried to cultivate a good intention, a pure intention, a kind intention, a helpful intention." If we know our intention, not just if we think that, but if we have a, a connection with our heart, this is where intention is. You know, we we can think about our intention up here, but but we feel our motivation down here, even in our guts, in our heart, we feel what, where are we coming from? What, what is our, the whole body, mind, motivation behind this activity? You say something to somebody, they come to you and they ask a question, and you say something with the best of intention, and then they get absolutely devastated. Somebody was mentioning a circumstance to me a couple of days ago about where one sister had, had given some advice to her younger sister, and the young sister had just absolutely fallen into hell. Well, you know, maybe it wasn't the older sister's intention to do that. Now, of course, we do need to cultivate skillful means as well. It's not just good intention. The Buddha didn't teach just good intention. But essentially, he said, karma is intention, a jetana, motivation, that the result of our karma is determined by our Jetana, by our intention. So it's not what we do, but what we motivated to do. What we were motivated to do, what we intended to do. Now this is terribly important if we want to 
become responsible human beings, which presumably we all do, if we want to be responsible in life, well then, well, we have to know our intention. How do we know our intention? Brilliant, the five precepts. It doesn't matter even if you never go on meditation retreats, quite frankly. You know, some people, they think that they're not practicing properly because they're not going on meditation retreats or they're not even sitting anymore. But if the commitment is to everyday mindfulness and to keeping the moral precepts, then they're not going to be losing ground and they will be progressing. Because those five moral precepts, to really keep them, we've got to be checking our motivation. What was my motivation behind that? And then we're reflecting, we're getting to know our own hearts and that's where strength lies, when we know our own hearts. And then the chances of being not so, we're not so likely to be intimidated by life, intimidated by our own unruly nature or intimidate, intimidated by the external conditions of the world. So thank you very much this evening for your attention. Andamayang dhamma varagatasa dukarang dhamma say